Hey church, Pastor B here, and I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out this series called No Longer Afraid, where we tackled uh, hot topic issues from a biblical perspective. Now, uh, the things shared in this series were not intended to be an exhaustive response to the issue because all of these issues are complex, but we do hope that it will stir conversation with you and allow you to dig in deeper into God's Word to see that God's not afraid to talk about these issues. So we hope you enjoy this. I think that uh, when we talk about the topic of sexuality, uh, it can always be a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, it can be a, a subject that is of concern, especially when we're talking about uh, sexuality within the family unit. So how do I talk to my kids about sex? How do I express that uh, sexual desire appropriately within marriage? Or if I'm uh, single, what is, uh, what is my expression supposed to be? And uh, so what we want to do is be able to touch base on some of those things this evening. Um, but I want you to understand, I, it may be that this evening there are some questions in here uh, that we answer, um, and, and it will suit, the answer will suit some of the folks in the room, but it doesn't perfectly hit exactly the concern that you had. Uh, and, and we get to the end of the evening, uh, and, and you still didn't have those questions answered. What we're praying tonight is not that we'll have the perfect answers, and that in one evening you can get all of the questions answered, right? That's like the parent's uh, best dream, Okay. We had the sex talk on this one weekend, answered all their questions they never had anymore. That's just not going to happen. What we are hoping for this evening is to start a dialogue, for us to understand that we should be talking about this topic. Amen? This should be a part of our discussions with not just our, our kids in our family or our husbands and, and wives, but we should be talking about this as Christians. How do we rightly relate to a world that has fallen? And so I just want to make some observations at the very beginning, just a couple of statements before we get into the Q&A section. Uh, and I want to be able to make some, um, some observations that hopefully will set our minds uh, on the direction that Scripture would have us be focused. So... Four observations. If you want these uh, notes that I'm just, the, the basic points, they'll be uh, at the doors on your way out or both this series and the, the one that we talked on uh, same-sex attraction uh, the time before will be available online and the notes from those will be available uh, there as well. First observation this evening that I want you to uh, hear and understand is that sex is a gift from God. Amen goes there. All right. <laughs> sex is a gift from God. And by sex, we're talking about a sexual union between folks. So we also want to uh, highlight sex as a gender. But your sexual union with another is supposed to be an act of recognition of God's good gift. And it is an act of worship, believe it or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 um, goes through the battle that the Corinthians were actually having in their relationship with other people. So Paul is speaking to a group of people um, that were living in a world not unlike our own. In fact, I want you to understand that when Christianity gets dropped onto the world scene, it's not like Christianity was dropped into a naive world uh, where a bunch of people just had uh, relationships uh, like you would picture, uh, you know, if it's uh, Little House on the Prairie, 
and everything is uh, clean and appropriate and proper. Uh, we kind of envision the older, farther back you go back in time, that the more appropriate that relationships were. This is not the case at all uh, in the world that Christianity gets dropped into. In fact, uh, in the Roman and Greek culture, uh, sexuality had been uh, adulterated um, far beyond even what we would see typically here in the United States. The kinds of sexual relationships that were common, uh, the kinds of abuses that were common, the kind of talk and the way that sex was displayed uh, was so far afield from what God had wanted for people that the culture was falling apart as a result of a lack of a marital union, as, as a, a lack of community that was available. And Paul is saying Christ has a better way. He goes through, uh, we covered uh, verses 7 and following the time before, but he wraps up in chapter 6 with this statement. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. He was talking uh, earlier in that chapter about what a, uh, a defiling moment where people, because of false worship, would join themselves to a, a temple prostitute in a sexual union. And he says, don't you know that you are one body with them, that you're actually giving a part of yourself away in that union? He says, this should not be. God actually designed a sexual union for a husband and wife within marriage. That's the way that he designed it. But he actually says that there is an offense that is going on here. It's not just that you've, you've committed a physical act. You've actually done something that will uh, harm you. It's taken away from your ability to see God rightly. He says, therefore, glorify God with your body. You were given a body to be able to participate in this union, God's actual design from the very beginning was he sa it says that he created man, he created them male and female, and he put them right away into a marriage relationship. Do you believe that? Right away. That was the design from the beginning was he created them of the age where they could be married and put them into a relationship where there was a sexual union from the beginning. That was his intention. And he says, I want you to glorify God with your body. Why? God actually created you to enter into this union and to rejoice in his goodness by participating in a sexual relationship with your spouse. How do you glorify God with your body? It's literally saying glorify God by your sexual relationship. Praise God through the way that you focus on one person alone. It's a gift from God. And the union with another person is an act of recognition of God's good plan. A second thing that I want us to see this evening as we get set up is that sex, gender, is also a gift from God. Not just a sexual relationship is a gift from God, but your gender is a gift from God. Genesis chapter 1, 27 gives us a statement from uh, 
from God, it says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. From the very beginning, it says he created man to be a, a unified couple. That is the way that he wanted them to participate in the world together. And it says he created man, singular. Then it says he created them, male and female. From the very beginning, he created you as a unit, male and female, together to be unified. But you were given a gender from the very beginning by the hand of God. When he created Adam creates a male. When he created Eve, he creates a female. And from then on, our gender is assigned at birth. Do you believe that? Now, we live in a culture right now. Both of these statements go against things that our culture is saying. You were actually assigned a gender at birth. The culture then does everything it's impossible to nurture you and pull you away from that original assignment or to make you dissatisfied with it. But it is not, uh, it's not that you decide that you are male and female because of cultural pressures. You're assigned a gender, and you're trying to deal with whether or not you accept that because of cultural pressures. Gender is a gift from God. It's assigned to you before you learn anything. We actually have a, a concern when somebody would come into uh, the building. If they have uh, um, distress of some kind, we know that the EMTs that are coming into the room are going to ask a question. If there's a heart attack or some other kind of, of failure uh, in a person's body and they're in the auditorium, they get dragged out of here during the middle of a service, which we've had happen even recently in one of our events, okay? And what do the EMTs ask? Well, is it a male or a female that has fallen? Why does that matter? Because there's actually a difference in the way that males and females would take on board certain medications or the way that they will respond to certain treatments. They actually will say there is a genetic, there is a, a gender bias in the way that they will treat that individual so that they will live. There are differences that are wired into us that we don't get a choice on. Now, we can have struggles. That's actually um, that's a, a part of our fallen world. The world will cause us to question uh, how God has assigned us, how God has made us. But that gender, what sex you are at birth, is a gift from God, and we need to receive it. Sex as a relationship is a gift from God. Sex as a gender is a gift from God. But also we need to see that uh, marriage is universal because of God's design. Once again, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, And uh, the man said, This is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The one, um, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And the scriptures declared, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife or clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. If you go and uh, you look around the cultures of the world, in every single culture you will see marriage, some version of marriage. It is a universal thing. 
built into the way that we respond to each other. It is the way that, that God designed us to relate. Marriage is universal. And the sexual relationship is designed to be fulfilled within marriage. A short while ago, there was an article written by George Leonard. He was a journalist uh, for a well-known women's magazine. And he says this. He said, like millions of others, I welcomed the sexual revolution of the 60s with open arms. I even did my own part through articles to further it. How healthy, how long overdue this revolution seemed. After years, centuries of uh, repression, we now could be free to discuss sexual matters in mixed company, to live together openly without being married, to obtain sexual information easily, to see erotic films, read erotic books, to try out previously forbidden acts, to share erotic fantasies with our mates. The revolution enjoyed one swift victory after another. We were on our way to an erotic utopia where informed, mutually consenting individuals could fully realize themselves without public opprobrium or private guilt. He says, but uh, sadly, it began to fall apart. And not fall apart because the culture didn't think that it was working, but fell apart for those of us who were participating. It was not as fulfilling as we thought. That's what he said. He comes to this amazing conclusion. Advancers of multiple sex partners have a saying. Why should I be satisfied with a sandwich when there's a feast out there? And they ask this because they've actually never experienced high monogamy. That's what he calls marriage. Those of us who have tried both see it very differently. Casual recreational sex is hardly a feast. It's not even a good hearty sandwich, he says. It is a diet of fast food served in plastic containers. Life's feast is only available to those who are willing and able to engage life on a deeply personal level, giving all, holding back nothing from another. For those who can make the leap of commitment, the rewards are great. A rare tenderness, an exaltation, a, heart, a highly charged erotic ambience, a surprise on a daily basis and transformation at the hands of another. He says the only way that you can actually have a feast in a sexual sense is if you give yourself fully to another person. And it's not just that you are naked physically with them, but you bear your soul. All of who you are is available to that individual. And in that place where somebody else fully knows you and they have access to you, you have access to them. Only in that place is sexuality not just felt, but understood appropriately. That's what God wants. So what is a central issue? I think that uh, tonight what I want us to be able to see is not just that we can talk about sexuality. We're going to answer some questions, and we have some folks here that I think will be able to help us at least be able to walk through uh, that dialogue. But the central issue to me uh, as a pastor, as I have uh, watched um, this dialogue happen uh, over uh, quite a few years now, is I have watched us as a Christian community begin to defend the world's attacks against the biblical view of sexuality 
We, we defend it and we say, no, this is right and this is the way it should be. And we begin to make statements like, uh, well, this is the only satisfaction that we're ever going to have. And we make it all about our personal satisfaction or we tell our kids it's about their personal satisfaction in the right context. But I think I, I want us to, to tweak one piece of our mindset. In Ephesians 5, in fact, uh, if you uh, have an opportunity, you, you should write down uh, Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about Christ emptying himself. That's the attitude that he had. 1 Peter chapter 2 when it talks about marriage starts with Christ's sacrificial gift uh, of giving his life on behalf of us. But Ephesians chapter 5 wraps up its statement to husbands and wives when it talks about mutual submission at the very beginning, giving thanks for everything for um, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he launches into the statements in chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through the end on husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands, husbands. Um, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He talks about a relationship where together they both give up who they are and what they want in order to serve another. And he says this at the very end in verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting their Genesis. This mystery is profound when I'm talking about Christ in the church, but to sum it up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. What does that have to do with sexuality? This is the relationship that God designed sex to be found in. We have to change in our view of sexuality from self-driven to self-giving. Where is the place that I will give myself away? From selfishness, I want to have my needs met. I want to have my experience uh, to be the fullest. I, I want to have my fantasies fulfilled to selflessness. How do I make sure that my partner is experiencing what they desire? We need to change from self-serving to servanthood. Why is this important? Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. I was a youth pastor uh, during the 80s, and I remember uh, during that time uh, in the 80s that uh, one of the great uh, things that kind of swept through was the purity talks that were always uh, being had. And in particular, uh, in those purity talks, statements would be made on a regular basis that were like this. You need to wait until you are married. We agree with that. But then they would go on to say, if you wait until you are married, God will bless it in such a way that when you get married, on your honeymoon night or, or during uh, your marriage, that the sex is just going to be so overwhelming and such a great blessing and so mind-blowing that it will be worth the wait, right? And what happened to a whole generation of kids that grew up in the 80s? Well, they got married, and then they've been calling into the office since and saying, you lied to me. <laughs> I thought you said this was going to be awesome, but um, it hasn't turned out to be as good as you said. It's not as fulfilling as you said. 
I was sharing with the staff earlier, I, I said, well, you know, when, when uh, I, what, name one sport that you go out and right off the bat, you just nail it the first time, huh? You gotta practice, folks, okay? Russ, you got it, right? Okay, thank you for laughing. <laughs> this is something that you have to practice. We sold them lies based on the idea that we did not want them to run to this early. Should you wait? You absolutely should wait. But is it about you wait and then you will personally be fulfilled at the most amount? This is about your fulfillment and you will not be fulfilled appropriately unless you wait? Well, how about this? It was never about your fulfillment, but about you fulfilling somebody else in the context of marriage. It's about you giving yourself entirely to another and meeting their needs and them giving themselves entirely to you. It is two people who, if they do not handle this rightly, will live in a dissatisfied union. Or if they both completely give themselves to the Lord and say, I'm going to serve you no matter what, they will have an electrifying union because they are working on this together. But if self-serving is the point, if our culture is correct that you should only enter into a relationship when the, the sex is satisfying, when you have tested it out, when you make sure that it really um, makes you feel fulfilled, well, what happens when that person gets sick? What happens when that person is harmed? What happens when you go through things like childbirth and, and heavy, heavy, intense times in your job or struggles in life or financial uh, concerns or you get separated because of your job or family crisis and it's not fulfilling? Well, what do you do? Well, in the world's eyes, if it's no longer there or it's no longer romantic, you go find something that will fulfill you. If it's all about your fulfillment and you're not feeling fulfilled, well, then you quit. But what Scripture says is it's all about you giving yourself away, being selfless, available to another. And he says only when two people can meet like that will you have a fulfilled relationship where you're not only pleasing another person, but you are, being, you are feeling pleasure in return. And the joy is deeper than the act. It takes you to a place of real satisfaction. We need to make sure that uh, the central issue that we have before us is how do we become a culture that serves? We'll tackle some of these, but I, I believe if our entire goal within relationships is to find a way to serve another, one author said, uh, it's not about happiness, it's about holiness, about giving yourself to another and learning how to be completely separate from all others, that there is a relationship that is holy and separated, and everyone can see you have eyes for them alone. If it's about service, if it is about blessing, if it is about selflessness, then even if you are single, you can be selfless. Do you know that? Even as a single person, you can still find community. You just don't have it in the same way that you will have with somebody who, with whom you are married. But if satisfaction, if God built us to be satisfied or to find satisfaction in community, in selflessness, in serving others, there are elements where you can be fulfilled as a single person while waiting for that person who would fulfill you. It's absolutely the case. 
Selflessness is what we have to focus on. So what I want us to do is uh, take a, a few moments now, and, and we're going to uh, switch gears here. I'm going to ask some people to come up onto the stage. Uh, Julie, who is a part of Women's Ministries there, and Tara, who is nervous. <laughs> All right, so let's welcome them up, and Pete as well. And then asking questions for us down here will be uh, my wife, Christina, and Matt. Um, Steve, I think you stole my Bible. Thank you, though. Uh, I'm not sure if I had my crib notes up there as well. So what we're going to try and do is answer a few questions. Oh, uh, Pete, thanks for being up here. He's already nervous. Look at him chugging the water. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, there we go. Yeah, all right. <laughs> this is going to be the longest drink in history. Good job. So what we want to do is be able to answer some of the questions. Once again, let me uh, set expectations here. Can we answer every single detail that might be in the room? I don't believe that we can. But what we would like to do is begin to start the conversation and highlight two things. We need to be having these discussions, amen? amen. We gotta talk about God's plan for sex and the fact that sexuality is built into us and we live in a culture um, that is constantly expressing uh, sexuality and in fact is creating sexual tension. So we have to be able to discuss what is the appropriate way to live out those values. But also, um, we want to continue the discussion as leaders. So we want to invite you to be able to have those discussions without being embarrassed or feel like you're asking a question that, you know, you have to sneak off into some back room and say, hey, by the way, I've got this question. These are normal part of questions. Uh, in marriage, you should be able to talk openly about sex and finances, right? Those are both hard <laughs> questions. We should be able to do the same in our church. And so we're inviting you as a result of this evening, if you have questions or you say, man, I'd like you to sit down with us as a family uh, or with our kids, uh, we, we would be willing to do that as well. So from the peanut gallery, Matt and Christina, can you uh, feed us a question? Yes, we can. How do we navigate all the messages our children are given in public school about sexuality that are not in line with scripture? <laughs> did you just take a drink? I did. I was trying to, I was trying to catch your attention to say it's, uh, it's, it's my you, turn? big guy. All right. You know, I think uh, it's easy to fall into fear when it comes to what's going on. And, and I, I can tell you this, that um, I worked in private school for 15 years. Um, there's as much confusion there in regards to that. Your school, whether you're homeschooling, private schooling, public schooling, um, there's a lot of messages and lots of wrong information about sexuality and sexual relationships, the purpose of it, um, that your kids are going to hear, they're going to be exposed to. And so I think the, the first thing is just to have an active and open relationship with your kids where you talk about that from an early age mm -hmm. in an age-appropriate way, but to answer their questions as they get inquisitive about their bodies talk to them openly about those things. Don't make it a hush-hush situation. Mm -hmm. um, I think the more engaged you are in it, they will feel awkward. We all felt awkward talking to our parents about it. 
but having the opportunity to then take them to the scriptures and teach them what the Bible says about the things that we even talked about tonight and let them know. I, mean, I love the fact that this series is called No Longer Afraid because we don't have to be fearful of this. We don't have to do that. Um, and, I, and I totally understand, um, you know, the scriptures talk about a warning in the Song of Solomon about not awakening love before it's ready. And so I understand the appropriateness of not having to get too advanced, too graphic, too explicit at a young age. But the reality is, it's already pretty explicit, even at the elementary level. And so we need to just be able to say, hey, this is how God made bodies. He made them beautiful. And he, um, but also talk about the appropriateness of how God designed it, what it's been designed for, and to talk about it openly. So you want to navigate, you want to combat that. Um, start, it starts in the home. It starts with you showing them what it looks like appropriately in your own marriage, in your own family, and then talking openly about what the Bible says about it and getting ahead of that conversation and letting them know that they can always come to you and talk to you about any question or any confusion they hear that they will never be put to shame or be told that, no, we don't talk about that here. Um, because if you don't answer that question, they'll either figure it out on their own or they'll go to somebody else. Uh, Matt, when, uh, when you were framing that question there, did it say how do we uh, combat the false ideas that are in the culture? No, it's okay. just how, how it relates. Okay. That way. And, and since we pushed Mark's answer, it disappeared. Okay. <laughs> so we answered it. Click that. Check how, that one off. How do we navigate all the messages our children are given in public school about sexuality that are not in line with Scripture? Okay. Yeah. So it, a wrong view that is out there. I, I do think this is where a little bit of creativity too needs to be a part of it because uh, did, did anybody watch the Super Bowl? I mean, I was at church, but uh, you know. I was at church too. Reveling in the uh, Kansas City win and being correct. I know, 49er fans. Um, but the halftime show at uh, the Super Bowl created quite a stir in our nation. A lot of people were concerned about the, uh, the way that uh, that halftime show got, got put out there. This is a perfect time to be talking to your family and say, okay, what, what do you think they're saying? With the way that they're dancing, with the statements that they're making, with the way that they're using their bodies. Now, you don't want to sit there and watch the whole entire show, but uh, your kids are not going to miss all of those signs. Um, I can remember a long time ago uh, with a whole group of uh, what we listed then as a bunch of at-risk teenagers, uh, Christina and I, at one point, uh, all of the kids that showed up at our sixth grade junior high showed up with condoms that had been handed to them by the public schools. Do you remember this, hun? And uh, the night was already risque enough. She actually had a box in the corner of the room with blankets that she would have for when they would come to sit down because their, their clothing was so inappropriate. She'd put, it was blankets every night. Everyone has to wear a blanket on their knees, okay? So all these guys and girls with blankets over their knees not knowing why. And I can remember during one of those uh, evenings, we had them just go through and take out pictures uh, in a magazine, pictures of guys and gals, and then just say, we want you, just people that were just coming to church for the first time, I want you to tell us uh, give us some character traits of these individuals. You begin to assign character to these individuals. You're wearing this clothing. What are they thinking? How do they act? What do they do on a Friday night? We ask questions of those pictures. And we began to have a study. Well, why would you be attracted? Why do they think that you would want to wear this clothing um, if you are 
thinking this about their character. We began to say, well, what do you think God says about um, those traits? What would God have you put on display? And began to say, is there a way to dress that would honor the Lord? Just coming from a cultural perspective. These weren't kids that had grown up, a lot of them, in Christian homes. And you know what? They could actually begin to have the discussion, rather than battling over whether or not our culture is right or wrong, or are we uh, not giving women enough uh, opportunity to, to um, you know, just express themselves, are men uh, just dirty and bad people? We had all these discussions that were in the room, but we just asked them to begin to, on their own, identify. What am I trying to say by the way that I dress, the way that I speak, the way that I interact? you got to find a creative way to get past all of the um, PR that's out there and begin to talk to the heart. And however, that, now I think it would be different today. I think that you could end up in a poor discussion with that illustration, but there might be a better way to talk to your teen uh, or to kids, but find some way to have the discussion. What do you think they're actually saying? And be open to hearing something that maybe you don't love without being shocked. Mm -hmm. There are some questions that your kids ask and you turn away and you go, oh. <laughs> that just got said. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Wipe the shock off your face. Respond to them in love. Allow them to be curious and ask the questions. Mm -hmm. We've got to work hard at that, mm -hmm. so. Guys? Okay, ladies. How do we paint a positive picture of sexuality for our kids without being fear-driven or legalistic? Um, well, I think Pete kind of touched on that whole thing. The temptation is to not talk about it, to shut it away and just say, well, we're just not going to do any of that stuff, but that doesn't work. Um, so I think really, you know, I talk a lot with my kids, you know, what is God's opinion? And really that's what we want to do is we want to highlight what, what does God say about this? What's God's opinion of the genuine article? Because the world is throwing all kinds of counterfeits out in front of you. So we want them to be so familiar with what scripture teaches about sexuality that they're already recognizing the counterfeit. They're already able to go, eh, that, that doesn't quite sound right. So again, it goes back to you're creating in your home an atmosphere of open communication, a safe place. And I think the whole, the shock face, it's such a big part of that. We cannot be shocked. We can't be shocked in front of our kids. We can't be shocked as we rub shoulders with other people in the church when they share things or they come to us with struggles. We have to engage and go in. And, and really, we don't have to be afraid of what God's opinion is about this stuff. And we can just clearly say, this isn't my opinion. This isn't, and we're not looking to find out what the world wants to say. We really want to know what is God's opinion, the one who created all of it and wants our best. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No. All right. We'll get Julie on the next round. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I do. Th I agree that we want to make sure we focus on uh, God's opinion. I do think that the question comes up naturally, too. Um, do you think there are any grade schoolers that become attracted to other kids? Yes. Okay. That happens? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and we actually talk a lot about that because yeah. that's normal. I, I tell my girls, well, yeah, God made you that way. He made that part of you to go, that, that boy is cute. Like, that's normal. So what do we do with that? So, yeah, absolutely. 
I, I got 148 Valentines in second grade. <laughs> Not bragging. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's amazing. Turns out I was the kid that every bomb said, you better give that kid one because he's not going to get any. But uh, <laughs> is it possible to have attraction when you are kids? Yeah, I think that the time is not to fight that as much as to say, okay, well, what does God say about directing those passions? And just begin to guide from the beginning. Okay, we might be a little early on, you know, handing them a ring, but how do we find out about character yeah. and relationships and how do we protect our heart yeah. so yeah. I mean I, I grew up in the 80s and yeah. uh, it was my parents had a great desire to protect me but we didn't talk about it mm -hmm. and um, they really were you know had good intentions but um, I would say they, they erred on the side of what borders that legalistic idea, which is, again, legalism is when you take something and you take something outside of what Scripture says and says, God will not accept you if you do this, and, it doesn't, and if it doesn't say that in Scripture, right? And so we take something and we make it about God's approval of you when his approval is, you know, his love is known for you and, it's, and his justification, salvation is based on faith. It's not on adherence to a bunch of rules. But there's that, that temptation to protect. We're going to make this a matter of, I mean, every aspect of sexuality, modesty, appearance, interaction. We start to make these hard and fast rules as if they're in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciate the desire to protect our kids at all costs. And it is a slippery slope, but we have to teach them the why, not just don't do this because, you know, I said so or because God's not going to accept you or love you or approve of that and so we need to hear what does god want what does god say but be really careful of that because growing up then it just it impacted how i viewed all of that mm -hmm. and then as i started to struggle as those desires became more intense in high school um man it was easy to feel guilty and shameful and like not, that would never tell my parents what i was struggling with because i thought they would just they would kind of not accept that and so you know, now as an adult, I can look back and I can understand it. Now having kids, I can see why, but uh, I think there's a better way. There is. That's also why your dad bought you borscht as cologne. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them away. I'm about to tag Matt in up yeah, here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> sorry, Matt. Well, next question. Let's ask the next question. Yeah. How do we talk to our kids about purity with so many mistakes in our past? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. Julie, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we all just looked at you. How do we talk to our kids about purity when I have mistakes in my own past, right? Okay. Well, the truth is, right, whatever the issue is, this or a variety of different things. We all have made mistakes, right? We're all human, which means we're all sinful. We've all made mistakes. And God's son's blood cleanses all of that. He doesn't have a special label on this kind of sin that's not forgivable, right? It's all washed by his blood. So we can ac simply accept that forgiveness knowing we're, we're clean, we're forgiven. We don't have to live in shame. And we can move on from that, right? We've been made new. And so we can live like who we are. Yeah. And I think that uh, that freedom, we need to make sure we extend to each other. A little yes. bit of this has to do with the shame culture. Yes. Um, 
one of the things that used to be done, uh, once again, we talk about that 80s and really trying to focus on purity. Um, a, a guy would bring a rose up on the stage and they would say, hey, here's this precious rose. It's a sexual relationship with somebody that uh, you are really meant to be with. And uh, let's imagine in high school you hand that away and he starts peeling off some of the petals. And then you hand it off to somebody else and another petal and then another and, and, uh, and another and another. And all of a sudden there's nothing left but this stem and he's stepping on it. He says, you, you've, you've abused this relationship. And then he would ask the question, I can remember this happening, um, who would want that rose, right? right? And I can remember one guy shouting out that it had come out of um, just sexual idolatry. He shouted out, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that person. Mm -hmm. why, why wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. We have sent the message that if you make a, a mess of your past, that it's unforgivable and nobody will want you. That's legalism, folks. Mm -hmm. That's legalism. Mm -hmm. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus Christ will forgive your sins past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And we get caught up in shame and when we start focusing on shame, we can shame our kids for sin. We can shame them for any number of things. But we can say that that ruins you for all future relationships. It does not. Now, does it make it tougher in some scenarios? Did God put those expectations in Scripture for a reason? In other words, it will be harmful to you to go out and experiment. It will. It'll just be tougher for you to be able to work through those issues later on. God wants to set you away from that. But there is a plan even for that. You walk with the Lord and uh, receive discipleship from godly people. Instead of shame, you will get freedom. Amen? Yes. You will get freedom. And God can walk you forward. I will say this. This question is really relevant. If you currently right now are saying, how do I talk to my kids about sexual purity and I've got a secret addiction. Well, now it's written on your face. I would say there are some moments where some, maybe even here this evening, need to take care of that secret addiction, that stuff that you are looking at, that relationship that is not appropriate. You need to take care of that. And you need to not only ask forgiveness of the Lord, but if you know that your kids are aware of that secret habit, you need to go to them and say, will you please forgive me? I've let you down as your parent. And you tell them, this is not God's plan, and here's how it's harmed me. And you be honest with them. But you've got to create that kind of openness, um, and, and then you'll be able to see them reciprocate. Um, but yes, we, we have to lead our kids with truth. So, sweetness? Okay, next question. Why does my sexuality even matter to God? I, I think it matters a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think you go back to, you guys are going to have to chime in, yes, follow up will, on this. But um, you go back to what you read, Justin, from Ephesians 5, right? Because our, our, the picture of our marriage and our intimate relationship with our spouse is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And it, it points for us to Christ and his love for us. And so when we, we get to be a part of that metaphor, that is so that we can understand 
how much Christ loves us and the covenant that he has made with us. And then we get to live that out in covenant relationship in a sexual relationship with our spouse. That's huge. So it yeah. really matters to him, you know, um, in that with that in in mind. Yeah, I, th I think that's critical. I think that it was a design by God. And so beginning. it's not that he designed something and said, hey, man, I got something for you to just kind of, you know, have for your own uh, right. whenever. And it's not really a part of everyday life. That's not what God said. God right. said, I actually created them male and female. He created them for this union. Mm -hmm. uh, he created sex. He created, it says, all of the diversity uh, that we see around the world. He created you to be able to enjoy the world that we're in, to enjoy a sexual relationship, to enjoy food, to enjoy all of these things. And he says, when you enjoy that, you're actually bringing worship to me. You're praising me for my good creation. This is one more part of that. You don't get to separate this off and say it shouldn't matter to God. Why is he bothering me with this area? Um, one author said it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Mm -hmm. And a sexual relationship within marriage says, I am not as beautiful and perfect at all times in the stream of life as I want to be, but I am fully accepted right. in this relationship right. through all of those changes and expectations. That intimacy remains because of our commitment to each other. It is a picture, an outflowing of the gospel in the most intimate of relationships where you minister to another despite the flaws. If you don't know whether or not you have flaws, get married. All right? <laughs> They'll let you know. Okay? It doesn't stay hidden long. Yeah, and I, just real quick to add to that, I think it matters to God because he created it and everything he created matters to him. Mm -hmm. He created it for a purpose. Mm -hmm. Everything that he created is to glorify him. So he is glorified through sex when it is done in the design that he's created it. And so he didn't create anything that he doesn't care about. There was no add-ins or things that he overlooked. And uh, he actually, uh, that's not a man-made creation man yeah. didn't stumble upon that and created himself he created it and so it matters to him how do we combat shame culture for people struggling with pornography or sexual addiction yeah i think uh that's the hardest part of any sin is the mm -hmm is the confession part, um, that idea that I, by confessing, I'm acknowledging my sin, I'm acknowledging my weakness, that I've, I've offended God, I'm, I'm going to have, there's probably going to be repercussions uh, to those who I love, um, because my sin impacts everybody, uh, but how we avoid that, I think one, one way, um, this is not the only way, is we can't put it in its own category. And I feel like sometimes we take sexual sins and we put it in its own category and we treat it different than other sins. And we'll like, we'll, we'll give a pass online, we'll approve gossip, and, but yet, you know, sexual sins are just these heightened ones. And yeah. again, we see throughout scripture, sexuality misused and abused, it causes so much pain. And so it, we are right to treat it that way, but we are right to treat all sin that way and how it offends God. And so I think one of the ways we combat shame culture is to uh, encourage confession, uh, point to 1 John 1, 9 that talks about not only does he forgive that sins, but he cleanses us from unrighteousness, which means he sets us back, he begins to restore us, he gives us a path to being able to experience his design again. 
um, but we don't put it in its own category uh, and treat it harsher than we do other sin because then, I mean, <laughs> it's just obvious. Why would, I, why would I admit to anything that I know that I'm not, there's not going to be any understanding, any acceptance, or any help to overcome it? Matt, I know that uh, you're off the stage here, but you deal actually Monday nights with a lot of folks that struggle in this area. Can you just give us a thought on the shame culture? Because I think a lot of people even stay away from getting help from shame that they have created. That it yeah. may not be other people of shame, but they're feeling it. Mm -hmm. I, I was just talking with a young man uh, this week about this. Um, the reality is this. If we will go to God's promises about who we are, mm -hmm. and it begins with we've got to get the gospel right, that Christ died for all of our sins, past, present, future. He, was, he died on that cross, cried out, it is finished, was buried and rose again on the third day. And the power of the resurrection, we are, we are literally walking in that now by the spirit of God's power. So then, if, if, if somebody's struggling in this, the way to overcome the shame culture or, or the, the way that people can come across as if there's no hope it would be, well, Christ cried out, it is finished for that. Let's start looking at what he says about the hope because of Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 16 says that you have a great high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses, who is tempted in every way as you are, yet he did not sin, uh, so that you might be able to come to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in your time of need. And it says you can come to that throne with confidence. So ultimately, we got to get the gospel right, and how do we overcome the shame culture is we get the gospel right, and then we go to God's promises and we start seeing what he says he can and will do for the individual that's been struggling in these areas. Yeah. I, I want you to remember in Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve, uh, they eat from the tree. Uh, and it says that then they ran from that place. They got fig leaves. They covered themselves up. They ran in shame. Nobody had said anything about shame. At that moment, there was an innate response in them, and they're instantly hiding from God. And who was it that went and sought them out? It's God. And he says, where are you? Well, he knew where they were, but he also knew he had to have a gentle persuasion to come coax them out from behind the fig tree, right? They've hidden. One of the things you have to understand is sometimes it's not that you parents have put shame on your kids. They will say at times, well, well you're just awkward right? Or you're, you're just making me feel shame. Just let that float through. Don't fight whether or not that, that shame may be because I'm actually having an experience right here where I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with what I just participated in. And you've got to be able to say, hey, how can I get to you? How can I speak to you? How can we have this conversation? How can I draw you out to show you how I'm going to change uh, this situation for God's glory? And, and you coax them out to a place where they can repent and be clean uh, and find out how to have that relationship once again. Um, but shame comes as a result of our innate understanding that we've just offended a holy God. And we run and blame everyone around us. Um, don't be offended by that. Reach to them. So, did you have something else? Well, I just think one of the important things about this is that we would continue to cultivate authentic community with one another so that we're creating safe places so that people can bring those things that are hidden into the light. And, they, um, and, and we're also transparent enough to say that we're just as broken as you are and that you, you can come to me with this because I've also fallen in, in, in 
various ways, right? We're all sinful, fallen, broken people. So I think it's really important that we cultivate that authentic community with one another, a safe place so that we can encourage our our sweet brothers and sisters to bring that stuff into the light and then walk with them faithfully, bringing the truth. Okay. My unbelieving cousin asked that we call him a her. Should I respect their decision in order to keep the door open or take a stand by refusing to call him a her so they see truth? What's the most loving? Yeah, Pete, good job. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, um, we tackled some of this the last time, and, and I think we handled some of the nuances there, but I, I want to say this. Uh, I don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all answer, okay? So I think we have to take this case by case and scenario by scenario because there are some who are reaching out to who just don't have a relationship with Christ, uh, and we would approach them differently than somebody who is a believer that has fallen away uh, and they're really struggling because they've been enculturated. But we're also treating them differently than we would somebody who is a believer that then now has uh, adulterated that and is trying to attack your home. Uh, and they're trying to come in with a message. And so you have to have permission to say, we're, we've prayed before the Lord and here's the stand that we need to take. Uh, this is a complicated question. But I want you to think at the base level, how would God have you love anybody that has run far from him, okay? It's gospel first. Is there any way for me to advance gospel love to this individual and still say this is the standard of the Lord um, and this is what we believe? And then by constantly professing those things, they choose whether or not they want to be in relationship because that might offend or might be pressing against them. How can you show love? I will say this, is it possible for you to have somebody uh, that is homosexual into your home and welcome them, love on them, and have them know that you are a believer? Yes, uh, Christina and I have, all right? We've had folks into our home uh, that actively are practicing that, that know that we are believers and we will tell them, that, hey, this is the, the love of God. Folks, I told you the last time that we did this series that we had a uh, um, a uh, homosexual couple that had come forward and had gotten saved at our church. And when somebody in the community asked them, where can we go? They said, go to Salem Heights if you're trying to find out about Christianity. They'll receive you. And they found that to be true. By you being kind to them, they sat underneath the gospel and they said, we know this will impact our relationship. They gave their life to Christ. That was a right response, okay? First time they came in, they dressed as you would expect those in the homosexual community to dress. They held hands while they were coming in, and they were expecting an attack, and they were doing that just to test the waters. And instead, they were loved, and they heard the gospel and were changed. you got to just pray that that will be foremost. But there are times where we don't have a spine, and we say nothing. That also is wrong. We have to be overtly for Christ. How do we tell them God loves you, and you know... Um, he, he does have a better plan for your life than this, just like we would to anybody else uh, that is against God. I, I would say that would be really critical. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think it's uh, the fear is understandable of coming into a situation and not knowing how to do that. And if that is your reality, I mean, I, I feel for you. 
Uh, I think that's going to become more and more part of our culture. We're all going to be in situations where we might be blindsided or, or anticipate something, and that fear is going to rise because we don't know the right answers. We don't know how. And I think a lot of times the fear is what we're going to receive in response. And, and so to the, to the part of the question that talks about how do we handle it to keep doors open, I, I think uh, the gospel, when, when we're, we're called to give an answer to the hope that is in us, we're called to do that with gentleness and respect. And I feel like the consistency of a life lived before them um, uh, is going to uh, speak louder uh, in some cases than anything we say. We can actually do more damage in how we respond in that initial time than to be loving and having the opportunity to live out our life, live out our faith, and they actually have that opportunity to share life-changing news, which is the gospel. So um, the fear is, well, I think pray in that situation, and whatever your conviction is, um, you know, live out that conviction. Pray, uh, ask for wisdom, and then um, move forward with confidence, and knowing that if you get it wrong, then you, you, you work that out with the Lord. You go to Him and say, God, I, okay, I, I didn't do that well, would you help me? Maybe it's even going and asking for forgiveness. But um, sometimes it's we we put it all on the one interaction, and there's there's just there's a lot more there. And so um, walk in the spirit in that, and, and ask the Lord for help. How do we help a child who has been exposed to pornography? Man, I think that is really tough. Um, Matt, I, I think once again, I, I'd love to get uh, your input because we've talked about this a little bit and uh, some of the men that we've been around in particular that were exposed at a very young age. Um, but I do believe there are levels of exposure. Uh, if what we mean by, and this question, I'm not sure who asked it, uh, it that they've just seen some pornography, uh, that's one level of response. Uh, if we see them actively pursuing pornography, it's another level of response. If we see them pursuing pornography and beginning to act on some of those impulses, I think we have another layer of uh, concern there. Um, but we definitely do not want to leave that in the boys will be boys or girls will be girls category. Is that true? Amen. We don't want to leave that because there is nothing about pornography on either side of the equation. And uh, right now in our culture, more than 50% of all men and women by the time they get married have seen pornography or participated in this young culture in viewing it. Uh, it does not honor the opposite sex. It does not put, paint a good picture of the opposite sex. It does not give you healthy appetites or expectations. And we have to be very vocal about the way that it will wound their perspective. But as far as undoing some of that, um, well, we've emphasized the gospel. Um, and in the midst of that, another thing I'd love to say too is Isaiah 55 says that the word of God goes forth and it does not ever come back void. Uh, much of this, we've got, to, we've got to help our child that's been exposed at whatever level mm -hmm. to get into God's word and then trust the spirit of God to do something, give him something to do. Just counseling them to say, that's terrible, stop it, does not work. Wow. The renewing of the mind must come from, first, we've got to find out if our child is saved. Okay? The, without the spirit of God, there, there is no supernatural work going on inside the heart of a child uh, in, in the midst of that. So the, the gospel's key. So if they're saved, 
if they're not saved, what we're doing is loving them and pointing them towards Christ, and then we're trying to put up proper boundaries and trying to help that child stay away from that, right? And, and showing them Christ. And then we're, we're literally telling them the harm that the pornography does, but without the Spirit of God in them, but we're still using the scriptures with that young child. Um, if they are saved at whatever age, and by the way, we're all just little kids in adult suits, all right? So, so what we're dealing with is many times is we're dealing with people who are on some scale of childhood all the way up to adulthood, but still thinking like a child and behaving like a child and struggling like a child. And so what we're doing is we're taking them to the word and we're showing them from the word, God's love for them, but also they can put on armor. They can put on the helmet of salvation. They can put on the breastplate of righteousness. They can lift a shield of faith. They can walk in, the, in, in shoes that are the gospel they can put on a belt of truth, and then they have to learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to replace thoughts. Because what they do when they expose themselves to pornography is they start running things through their mind, and their mind is designed for sexuality with a mate, right? So now they're, they're, they're already starting stuff in their mind that is starting to run to that. They've got to learn now how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We've got to teach them now from God's word how to replace thoughts and temptations with his word, promises. Yeah. Counseling is super helpful, but we've got to get them into God's word. And what we're watching happen is people set free, both men and women, by the way, and we have a question about that too coming up with regards to women and, and these things. So I hope that answered the question, but I, yeah, it's no, huge. The word of God does not come back void. Give the spirit of God something to do. Yeah. I, real quick, I think, too, that what we talked about earlier, if you come to that knowledge that your child has seen it, try to respond in a way that lets them know that you love them, they're safe, and you're going to help them with that, um, even if you are shocked or appalled or hurt. Um, again, don't, don't drop the hammer on them right away because that is just going to put bigger obstacles in the way of them actually seeking out help from the person you want them seeking out help from and that is you yeah next question here's another one um kind of related to our children or youth um, how can we talk to female teens about modesty without it being completely focused on how it affects men I think that's a really good question, um, and I think it's important for us as we talk with our young girls growing up, and when I think about that, I, I think about talking with, with our daughters, right, about what is their heart, where where are they at in that, why, why would they, why do they choose to wear what they choose? they choose to wear you know what is their motivation behind that and the importance of let's please God in that let's honor him in that and and not focus on what is the rule what is the expectation of other people because you're then, then you're setting them up to please man instead of really humbly going to the Lord and, and seeking him on, on that. And, and even young girls can do that, right? They can take that and, and really ask themselves, why is, is my motivation, is that pleasing the Lord? And what does please the Lord in that? In, instead of um, hammering that in, well, 
it's your responsibility for how a man looks at you, right? Or you have to dress this way to be looked on as okay with your um, other people in your social church group, right? Yeah, I agree, because that gets away from the shame culture. It, and yes, and that's very, it's very hard to then get out of that. Yeah. I think one of the things that we have allowed to happen is we have said, well, men are just lustful pigs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, we can understand. That's all right to say out loud. We've done that as a culture. They're just a bunch of lustful pigs, so you've got to try and hide yourself from these crazy people until you find the right man, right? Well, now what's going to happen when they find uh, a, a guy? How do they switch from they're just lustful pigs to this is a loving husband, uh, if that's really the reason. I, I think we have to get away from, we got to get creative once again with how do we have the discussion. Mm -hmm. Is there any place where we begin to pull the veil over certain aspects of who we are because it's appropriate to do so? So let's just talk about the sexual relationship. How, how much PDA is okay? And when we're talking with our kids, is there any point at which we close the door to the world and we only have a relationship for each other? Then let's talk about why. Why wouldn't we have this relationship out in public? Why does God even in Song of Solomon use metaphors and pictures as if he's pulling the, the drapes closed a little bit on the bedroom and trying to describe for you the beauty of romantic love without giving you all the details? Why does he do that? Because there are things that are inappropriate for all the rest of the people to look at or participate in. This is just for you too. And we start the discussion there. At what point is it appropriate to cover over and to mm -hmm. withdraw or separate and say, this is a part that is reserved only for my spouse? And then we begin to work that, that way. And for girls, that will be one part of the discussion. For guys, uh, there will be another aspect of that discussion and how you treat each other. Mm -hmm. um, but we are always to revere each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and then try to honor and elevate yes. that. But we got to start with the discussion, getting away from... Uh, who's the pig or, you know, who's the wolf and who's the bait. And, and uh, that kind of discussion is not healthy. Uh, and, and it doesn't lead us to a place where we can uh, continue to build on it. So where does God actually allow us to, um, or why does he ask us to cover over certain aspects of it? Start there. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that helps with the. Yeah. If sex and sexual feelings are a gift from God, how does a person who is single combat sexual temptation? The desire is still there, even when the spouse is not. Yeah. Well, Scripture, Paul talks about this, about the, um, he kind of tries to correct a little bit of the view of singleness, as if those who are married are more loved by God than those who are in singleness. And so um, I, I would say, well, simply, it's understandable why a person would have the temptation, the desire, the attraction to the opposite sex. That's how God's created you. But again, I think it goes back to what Pastor Justin kind of said to start the night, which is uh, our true identity being that to glorify God and to, and to follow after Christ, which is to give ourselves away and to be more selfless and to serve. And that can still be accomplished within that. So um, those are, those are uh, definitely... Feelings that God has given us the ability now in Christ to be set free from the bondage of sin, being controlled by it, and we can actually identify now we're discerning. We can tell the difference between good and evil because the Spirit of God resides in us. 
So that should mean if we're tied in you know, through the word of God, we understand the gospel and we're listening to the spirit, we should now have the ability in Christ to discern, discern the difference between you know, an inappropriate thought and the seed of sin and that giving you know, those things, those temptations, be able to see it, discern it, put it away, and, and in Christ be able to have victory over that um, in a way that God glorifies God and doesn't leave you at the end of the day feeling hopeless and lost. But it is, I will say, for those who are single and have the desire to get married, I, that is something that we understand, um, we, we care about, and I think that part of the community uh, that we've been talking about tonight so important to be able to find community and let you know people know that you you are a valuable part of this community you have value god loves you and uh to be able to walk alongside those people who are struggling with the desire to be married and they're single and and to be able to know that um they're not alone i our small group this year uh, a lot of married couples but uh, we have a few singles who've been able to join us and we've just like wrapped our arms around it. like this is not a married group like this is just a community group and you're part of this community and it's just been great to see the flourishing of that person um, in our group yeah and remember once again we go back to the garden uh, and God takes Adam from place to place to place and he sees two 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 everywhere he's looking Right. And Adam's looking around like, man, I'm feeling pretty much like there's a theme here, God. There's two everywhere. OK. And the first time that we hear it, God say it was not good. I was right. So it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was not good for the man to be alone. That's his statement. So he makes for him a, a spouse suitable to him. If you are single and craving that, I want you to hear this. It is not wrong for you to crave that relationship, okay? That's not a sign that you're unfulfilled or you're unspiritual. It's not wrong. He creates that craving, and he says, hey, if I put that craving in your heart, then, then I mean for that to be fulfilled. So it's okay to have that craving. But we all know, whether married or single, you've got you've to be very careful how you steward that uh, everyone can be tempted, and you, you deal with temptation the exact same way no matter who you are. Um, but it is okay to have that deep desire to be married and to be sexually fulfilled within that relationship. That's an appropriate desire as long as you let God guide it. Yeah. Okay, well, what about this question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This is a oh, harder no. one. How can a Christian live in a totally sexless marriage? I was drinking water, Pete, you didn't see. Uh, um, <laughs> do you guys want to tackle that one, or do you want me to I think the ladies uh, have been a little here? quiet. Yeah, they've been a little bit quiet. I think if that's the case, right, yes. um, there's probably some really deeper issues going on yeah. that need to really be dealt with, you know, because that is not, right, that's not God's plan, and and his design and so if that is the case there probably is some deep wounds there yeah. i would imagine right or some struggles so i would think that we would want to unearth some of that stuff yeah. and and let healing begin so that that they can be reunited that way yeah and i think um i, I think it's super important to to deal with 
uh, the idea that sex is not a measurement of whether or not your marriage is successful. Mm -hmm. So we have all yes. these reports out there that say, well, this is how many times you have to have sex if you're really happy, right? And everyone's like, well, wait, I don't know. That, those numbers seem fairly high, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, maybe some of you are saying, wow, that's really a low bar. I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> you're looking at the expectations that are put out there. Are we really happy? And you're saying wh whether or not we're really happy. That, that's not it. In fact, I was talking, uh, Aaron and Ange had sent back some responses to this, and one of the uh, things I thought was really helpful was the idea that intimacy isn't the test of whether or not the, the marriage is working, whether or not you're having an intimate relationship. Uh, but it is an indicator of whether or not you're healthy. If there is nothing that is physically wrong with you and you're in a sexless marriage, we do have to talk about uh, are you both happy with that? And if so, why? I'm believing that that question gets brought up because you are not happy with that. Uh, and you do need to meet the needs of one another. Um, there's all kinds of reasons, though, why you would end up in a sexless marriage. Um, and the concerns are varied and multiple. Uh, we have to consider for both sides, what is the failure that I have brought to the marriage that would cause it to be sexless? If in your opinion, it's your spouse's fault, you do have to have, the, as you're pointing the finger, the three fingers pointing back, you need to look at yourself and say, is it possible that I've done something to damage them so that they do not want to approach me or serve me in this way, all right? You've got, to, you've got to see that you can harm your spouse in a way that they don't feel you're approachable or lovable that way. Uh, but it's possible for you to be in a sexless marriage, intimacy-wise, um, and not have it be because somebody is just in sin. Uh, there can be sickness. You can be dealing with uh, an extreme sickness or some harm that has happened to one spouse or the other. But the key is, are you both committed to intimacy? Are you both committed to making sure that you are available to one another? And there is an intimacy that goes beyond just a sexual satisfaction where you are physically close and where you feel drawn to that other, where you've both given your heart fully to each other. Uh, and though your body may not be available, they know that your heart is, that can still be a satisfaction. So with the sexless marriage, the assumption being made there is I'm also in a loveless marriage. And by loveless, I'm probably participating in creating the culture that has robbed that. I would say uh, it would be really healthy if that's the case for you to get in with somebody and have a counselor walk with you through what scripture says uh, and then be able to help you be able to unpack not only what your spouse might be dealing with. Don't just look at how they might be failing 1 Corinthians 7 or some other passage in scripture. Uh, but look in your own life and say, is it possible that what I'm bringing to the table is actually damaging them? Uh, and look at your own heart. Uh, what are you demanding uh, that puts a hardship on their, on their plate? And I think if you throw out 1 Corinthians 7, and it just becomes transactional. And that, I mean, I remember in college, one of my professors talk, was talking, we got on this subject, and he was saying how, like, uh, intimacy further on in marriage is going to have less to do with physical attraction. And I was thought, I thought he was crazy. I'm like, what? <laughs> and as I've gotten older and uh, just been able to walk that out, I, that if you're in that position, just getting to the action itself is not going to bring any kind of lasting resolution. 
there is probably something deeper there that has to be unpacked. And as, as we do get to talk with some people and help them and counsel them who are struggling in this area, it is, my experience has been quite often that there are other factors that are contributing to a lack of sexual intimacy and frequency, and oftentimes it has to do with the lack of communication and connection and that, uh, that time spent together. And as lives get busier and kids come around and just we don't spend that time, um, so it, those things can start to dry out, start to kind of kind of phase out. And so that's the importance of communication, uh, investing not only in your own spiritual growth, but then also, because I think as you grow spiritually, you're going to become more selfless, which is going to cause you to meet your spouse's needs in ways that are going to be beyond sexual, but I think ultimately it kind of, again, leads to that intimacy and that expression of love. So um, I think there's a lot of factors, but we don't want it to be just transactional. Just give me that and everything will be okay. That, that's not the solution. We were talking about at our staff time a little bit, some of the things that get in the way, and I think that can be a subtext to that question. Uh, when we talk about uh, men and women, we have different sets of issues that will kind of come with the gender or with our scenario that will make it tougher for us to fulfill not just the sexual expectation, but also the idea of uh, a spark or connection in our marriage. What are some of those uh, issues that you guys hear quite often from women um, as they're struggling with this in their marriage? Well, I think we talked about this, you know, one thing that I hear a lot of is that, you know, I give, 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 give all day, little people, little things, I'm doing all the things, and then at the end of the day, I'm exhausted, and I don't have the energy to give anymore. Um, that's something that we hear a lot of, and, and we talked about how ultimately at the root of that, again, it goes back to, I'm only interested in myself, so I, I'm, I, I'm protecting myself and even all of the giving that I gave out, it really wasn't about serving any of those people that were in my life. It, it, it really was just all self-effort and really for my own, like, oh yeah, good job, I did it. Mm -hmm. So that's never an excuse. Really, then we have to look inward and go, okay, whew, um, am I really loving God? with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength so that I will love my neighbor. And who's my closest neighbor? Well, it's my spouse. It's my kids, you know, as I love myself. And the truth oftentimes is that I'm not. So it's a great moment to just do some self-reflection and be sure that, you know, we really are trying to carry out Galatians 5 when it says that we are to serve one another through love. And that's, you know, that's our job. Um, and we, do, we don't do that in our own strength, right? We do that as the Lord empowers us to do that well. When we love him right, we're, we're going to love the people closest to us right. Yeah. I, I think we talked about also the aspect of sometimes when we are having this discussion, uh, it comes across as, well, you know, just deal with it, right? And I think we were joking around. I, we had, uh, Christina and I had been listening to a podcast and, and the gal was like, well, look, I mean, you make time to brush your teeth and floss your teeth. You just get it done. Just do this. Okay. And I'm uh, like, well, I'm not sure that was really the whole heart of what we need to be focused on. <laughs> yeah. So I've got to floss my teeth tonight. You know, that, that's not the uh, heart you want. But I do want us to think about this. Is it possible that we have forgotten that emotions follow actions <laughs> rather than emotions should be driving our actions? Mm -hmm. 
Let me explain that. You actually make a commitment to your spouse and the emotion and spark and the joy comes back to that because you have made the commitment and you follow through mm -hmm. with that. And let me give you some proof. You have children and you love them as teenagers, right? Well, how did you get to the, well, I'm assuming you do because the teenagers are sitting here. So moms and dads, just admit you love them, okay? They're here. Do you love them? Absolutely, we love them to death. How does that love develop? That love that you say, I wanna give them everything and I wanna participate with them and I want them, I, when I see them having joy, I have joy. How do we get there? Well, it starts when they're little babies, right? And you're just looking and there is nothing they're going to give you. They are just crying and begging to be changed. You're feeding, them. you're sticking bottles in them, you're hoping that they go to sleep, but it's all serving and serving and serving. Have you ever talked to a mom that loved that? There's a process there where you say, I am committed to not allowing this thing to die, because I just know someday <laughs> it's gonna love me back, right? You serve and you bless and you take care of without getting anything in return, and the result is this warm affection that even when they're being offensive to you later on, you still love them. And how does that love get cultivated? How does that emotion get cultivated? Because of sacrificial love that creates emotion. It is the same in your marriage for both sides. Uh, we talk mm -hmm. about, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. And on husband's side, well, all day long, I'm disrespected and have expectations and all these bothers. And I just want somebody to bless me. Mm -hmm. But instead of taking care of his wife's needs first, he's worried about his own. Right. We come with the same set of, if you would just please me, maybe someday down the road I will you. And it's opposite of that. If we started with our children that way, they would die. If you right. just make me happy, well, the screaming mm -hmm. isn't making me happy, mm -hmm. all right? How about this, I start by serving, and down the right. road it's so delightful, I can't live without you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and we commit that way mm -hmm. and it grows, so. Make that I, I, commitment an emotional follow feel. I yeah. love Romans 12:10. Outdo one another in yes, showing honor, yeah. right? And as you do that in a relationship, if you are set on, I'm going to outdo you in showing you honor and and meeting you yeah. and your needs. You're you're going to be so blessed. Yeah. But it, it, first of all, it takes you focusing exactly what you're saying on them. What do they need in this moment? How can I meet them? I think so much about, um, you know, in, in, a, in a relationship between a husband and a wife and, and how, you know, I think it's in First Peter where it says for, for a husband really to be a student, right, yeah. of his wife, to live with her in an understanding way and to really know her heart and understand what makes her tick and what, are, what she's feeling deep inside and understanding. And, you know, I know that that, that takes a lot of effort on a husband's part, right? Yeah. You coming home at the end of a long day and I've got a lot of words I have to share, you know, all the things that I've been holding all day and his words may be used up by the time he gets in the door. But when he, when, when he's being a student of me and wanting to know what it is that's making me concerned, what is on my heart. And he listens to all of that and walks through all of that with me that that's him really 
honoring me, right? And then when I understand, too, that for him to, I, I, want, I want him to hear all that and know all that that's going on in me because I, I want to be connected to him. And I feel connected when I know he knows, you know? And then on, on the flip side of that, I also understand from Scripture, too, right, that for him to feel that connection with me, he has that same strong desire to feel connected to me that yeah. I have to feel connected to him. And I think about Proverbs where it says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And I'm the only one that is the wife of his youth, right? I'm the one that he gets to rejoice in, and I'm privileged to be that for him. And so as we come together in that, outdoing one another, trying to at least, in showing honor to one another, and, and we consider what is it that you need? Yeah. What can I bring to the table that will meet you where you're at? Not, not what do I need, right? What do you need in this moment? And if we're doing that mutually, Wow. Yeah. You know, it's it's rich and it's longevity in that too. Matt? So I'm so glad we had this time together. Uh, here's, <laughs> so we're at about 8:40. I wanted to find out oh, what that's you right. would like to do. Yeah. At, at this point, there's there's other questions, but you know, last time we ended a little earlier, and then we were up answering questions at the end. What would you Is like there any to do? question on there you see in repeated form someplace where you say, man, they, we need to answer this for the room? I, I know there's a bunch of them on there. And we want to make sure we tackle those. Um, well, there's several that maybe have been answered in different ways prior. Um, it, there's, there's, as we're looking at this, I will say this. The two of us had agreed. Does uh, Salem Heights offer any training groups or parents for parents to assist them in addressing the sexual issues their children are facing today. There's several other questions. Yeah. But if we're if we're looking at how are we going to wrap this up, um, do we offer anything um, that will help folks outside of coming to something like this? Yeah, and I think uh, so. We want to be able to handle uh, a couple of different personalities. Some of you can very easily uh, share. Uh, and uh, articulate your concerns. We would say that we have uh, some small groups, but also uh, we have a great counseling crew that's here uh, that's very capable of being able to walk through uh, biblical expectations. How can I talk with my kids? How do I talk with my husband and wife? How do I negotiate some of these issues myself? We have a great counseling team. We have some small groups that can help with parenting. Uh, we do have some books uh, that can handle husband and wife relationships or uh, what happens if you have had a past and it just keeps coming up and it's damaging uh, your thinking and I need to find a way to retrain my mind away from that. For both men and women, we have those. And we have some books available for talking to your kids about sex that are age appropriate. So it's not just uh, one talk and done. Uh, it's not the Dobson weekend, okay, right, where you just pick a date and say we're going to get it all done right here. Um, we need to make sure that uh, we have different talks at different stages and keep the talk going. And so we have those available as well. If you're interested in any of those, uh, you can come up. Uh, Pete will have access to a lot of those. Uh, I don't know if you brought any with you this evening, any examples of that. But uh, you can call into the church office as well, and we'll get you connected with those materials or talk to us after uh, tonight. So is that good? All right, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we'll stay up here 
and talk if anybody else has some other questions that you want to uh, be able to ask. But folks, thank you for uh, being here uh, this evening. And uh, I, I want to give a hand uh, also, once again, we got a bunch of students that are here uh, this evening. I am always thankful to see them on the auditorium, aren't you? Are you thankful for them? Yeah. And some of this discussion is useful, but also we want to make sure that uh, we're inviting them into these discussions in a better way than we did it, maybe, in our own homes or that we experienced when we were growing up. So let's just commit that we're going to improve on this. And we're going to keep talking about it and uh, bringing it before the Lord. Let me pray and we'll go. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity we have to present these things uh, this evening. We thank you for your plan for sex and sexuality and for marriage. And we pray that you would help us not to run from the culture in fear, not to run from aberrations or things that we see uh, outside of your norm as if uh, we can't wrap our minds around that or in disgust. We, we have all of these responses um, that are not framed by you or by the gospel or by forgiveness. Father, we pray that you would help us to see what your word says, to delight in the promise that uh, you made us to experience these things. This is your plan. And we ask that you would help us to live out our sexuality in a way that honors you, uh, that brings us joy and satisfaction and brings glory to your plan. We praise you for that. And we ask that you'd help us not to be embarrassed of it, uh, but to enjoy the fruit of the union that you designed for us. And Father, to exalt it, uh, to lift up that you have a plan and that within that plan, you create settled, satisfied, connected people. It was a part of your plan for community to happen this way. Help us to lift that up and to be satisfied with what you have provided. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.